This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 48, Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 31. Bless you, bless you, bless you. And one more, bless you. Chapter 28 is jam-packed with blessings. If you listen to God, then, as Moshe says, your life will be filled with blessings. Everywhere you go, everything you do, everything you touch. But, yep, you guessed it. If you stray and worship idols, well... I ain't do with you by damn sight. I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. And the list of exactly how God will get medieval is a lengthy, colorful, and graphic one. And even a little bit poetic in its dreadfulness. Shall I share some examples? Oh yes, I shall. Quote, Adonai will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From the heavens it will come down upon you until you perish. Or, Adonai will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors, with scabs, and with itching, from which you cannot be healed. Or, And it shall be, as Adonai once delighted in you by doing good for you and by making you many. Thus will Adonai delight in you by causing you to perish and by destroying you, and you shall be pulled up from the soil that you are entering to possess. And my favorite, quote, At daybreak you will say, Who would make it sunset? And at sunset you will say, Who would make it daybreak out of the terror of your heart that you feel in terror? Out of the sight of your eyes that you see. Chapter 28 has 11 blessings and by my count, 52 spectacular curses. That's a blessing to fabulous curse ratio of about 1 to 5. Moshe continues in chapter 29 with a little refresher again of recent events. The exodus, the miracles, the wanderings, the victories. It's all a part of the covenant. Keep it well, and it will keep you, but... Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. And there are more callbacks to the horrid curses and warnings against idolatry and how the Jews who stray get their asses medieval upon, and how they will be an object lesson for all the other nations as to what happens to folks who break a covenant with God. But fear not, Jews. Moshe says in chapter 30, even though you might find yourself scattered and depressed... God forgives and restores fortunes, reputations, victories, and homelands, and circumcises hearts so that the love can flow, as well as the rewards. The covenant is not in the heavens, nor is it across the sea, quote, See, I set before you today life and good, and death and ill, in that I command you today to love Adonai your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments his laws and his regulations, that you may stay alive and become many and Adonai your God may bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. It's a pretty clear choice, isn't it? Moshe is starting to wrap things up in chapter 31. He reminds us of his age and how he's not able to, quote, go out and to come in, and how he's not allowed to cross the Jordan. Shut up! Oh my God, I don't care! and that Yehoshua will be a capable successor. And to drive the point home, he calls Yehoshua to join him on stage and publicly blesses him and gives him a big vote of confidence. 
Then Moshe writes everything down and gives the book to the priests and the elders and tells them that every seven years when everyone gathers for the Sukkot festival, and he means everyone, they should have the instruction read aloud to them so that everyone could hear what it is they're supposed to do, especially generations later for those who don't know what transpired in Egypt and the desert, as if that really matters. Then God summons Moshe and Yehoshua to the tent of appointment so God can instruct Yehoshua, and when they show up, God tells Moshe that he's about to die, and despite all the warnings, quote, this people will proceed to go whoring after other gods of the foreigner of the land. Shut up! Oh my God, I don't care! And God tells Moshe that he will get angry and strike out at them. But if Moshe writes down the lyrics to this song and teaches it to the people, the people can sing this song, and it, the song, will be a witness. I guess a witness to the possibility of repentance, and it will save their asses once again from the medieval treatment. So Moshe writes down the song lyrics, and I guess the musical arrangement as well, and readies himself to teach it to the people. And then Moshe puts the finishing touches on the document and entrusts it to the Levites and calls the elders and officials to tell them that one does not need to be as omniscient as God to know that in the minute the Jews get to Canaan, they're going to go whoring after idols. So, to prepare them for the worst, he pulls out his acoustic guitar and starts singing. So... There's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. I've lost everything to you. You say you want to start something new. And it's breaking my heart, you're leaving. What gets people to change their behavior? After all, that's really the thrust of Moshe's farewell address. Moshe is concerned, and justifiably so, that his people will stray from the righteous path and that given the first opportunity, they will whore after Baal. So, how does one forestall this? From the portion, Moshe's approach is quite direct. Lay out the benefits for fidelity to God, and then scare the hell out of folks about idolatry. In other words, a little carrot and... A huge, pokey stick. But, I think Moshe would have benefited from research pioneered by folks like Uri Gnizzi, Dan Ariely, Danny Kahaneman, Richard Thaler, Amos Tversky, and others. What I'm referring to is behavioral economics. According to Wikipedia, there are three prevalent themes in this realm of economic decision-making. One, people often make decisions based on approximate rules of thumb and not strict logic. Two, individuals rely on a collection of anecdotes and stereotypes that make up their emotional filters to understand and respond to events. And three, the market, long considered to be efficient, is filled with mispricings and non-rational decision-making. Much research has documented these processes at work, and they make for very interesting reading, like Don Ariely's Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions, or The Upside of Irrationality, The Unexpected Benefits of Defying Logic at Work and at Home, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. And then there's Donnie Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is one of those top 10 New York Times bestsellers that no one actually reads. Malcolm Gladwell often cannibalizes from this uh, realm of research for his New Yorker pieces and his super blockbuster bestsellers. But an even more interesting read is Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. It was first published in 2008, and it sought to capitalize on the awareness of what the authors called choice architecture, and sort of gently nudge individuals to make good decisions. 
So here's an example from a 2010 paper entitled Choice Architecture, written by Thaler and Sunstein, as well as the editor of the Nudge blog, John Balls. And I'll include the link to the paper as well as the Nudge blog at the Next Jew and at the show page on Facebook. The director of food services for a large city school system runs a series of experiments that manipulate the way in which the food is displayed in cafeterias. Not surprisingly, she finds that what the children eat depends on such things as the order of the items. Foods displayed at the beginning or end of the line are more likely to be eaten than items in the middle and foods at eye level are more likely to be consumed than those in less salient locations. The question is, what use should the director make of this newfound knowledge? So, what would you do? Would you put fruits and vegetables in the prime position, or would you randomly display all the food options? Or would you arrange the food to reinforce the choices the kids already make? Or would you organize the food based on how much money food suppliers would pay you for spots at the beginning and at the end of the line? Or would you order the food to squeeze in as much money out of the kids as possible? The fact that you can get positive outcomes by structuring the choice architecture already puts you in a position of advantage. You don't have to use a carrot. Well, in this case, you actually are using carrots, but you know what I mean. You know, There's no carrot in the stick here. You're just employing a gentle nudge, which most people will go along with. And then really, it's all up to how good or evil you as the director of food services want to be which is a much better position to work from because, as I said, it's a position of strength. And, you know, let's assume you'll pick option A, putting healthier choices first and last so the kiddies will eat better. In fact, Thaler and company probably exercised a little choice architecture on you and me in the way they ordered the options. Another nudge I often bring up in the context of talking about getting people to change their behaviors with minimal muss or fuss is an infamous curve in my hometown of Chicago. When you're driving south on Lakeshore Drive, just after you get that majestic view of the top of the Magnificent Mile in the Drake Hotel with the John Hancock building in the background, there's a sharp curve at Oak Street. There are speed limit signs. The speed limit's also painted on the street itself in each of the four lanes of traffic. But in September of 2006, the city painted a series of white lines perpendicular to traveling cars, lines which get progressively narrower as the drivers approach the sharpest point in the curve. This gives the driver the illusion that they're moving faster than they really are, which prompts them, or perhaps nudges them, to tap their brakes and to slow down through the curve. As reported by the Nudge blog, city traffic engineers looked at the six-month period from when the lines were painted in September to March of that year and compared it to the same six-month period from the previous year. And what do you know? They found that there were 36% fewer crashes in the six months after the lines were painted compared to the same six-month period the year before. So, could Moshe have nudged the people away from the vexing allure of Baal? Could Moshe have structured the choice for Jews in a way that they would easily and smoothly pick God over Baal? Trying to enumerate the future potential benefits followed by a long list of threats and diabolical lurid punishments is all very logical, but people often don't make decisions based on logic, especially when sacred orgies are involved. So let's start with some basic assumptions, compliments of Thaler, Sunstein, and Balls, and see where it leads us. First, many people are either lazy, afraid, or distracted when it comes to making a choice and will often pick the option that requires the least effort, which is why defaults are ubiquitous and powerful which is why most people's resumes are in Times New Roman. 
For the generations after Sinai, the default is an opt-in, as in all Jews are automatically signed up for the covenant. It would take an affirmative act to say, no thank you, Moshe and God, we would prefer not to be part of the covenant, which would probably be followed by another affirmative act of violent purge. So perhaps the opt-out might not be a real viable option. Moshe is also cognizant that humans make mistakes. Believe me, he's aware of that. He lives that experience every day. Though one might argue that there should be more room for error built into the system that does not involve capital punishment or plagues, Moshe does provide numerous opportunities for repentance. He also provides ample feedback. He's not shy to let the people know when they've made mistakes. And more importantly, he put the right incentives on the right people. Throughout even the most tumultuous moments in the desert, the Levites and priests were consistently on side. But the rest of the people? Eh, not so much. Perhaps this tweak might prove to be more effective. Rather than trying to scare people and threaten to get all medieval on their asses, Moshe might make choosers aware of the incentives they face. In other words, if he simply flipped the formula and expounded blessings to curses at 5 to 1 instead of 1 to 5, choosing God, like that plate of carrots at the front of the cafeteria line, would be a quick, almost natural choice, and more important, one you could feel good about when everyone else is stuffing their face with french fries. Yeah, come on. Love my girl. She looking good. Come on. One more. Five to one, baby. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanafcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextju.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 49. The conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 32 through 34, and the end of the Torah portion of the Tanakh. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?